we've been kind of uh, teaching through the, the end of, uh, kind of teaching through the period of history that begins at the resurrection of Jesus and goes through up to and including the beginning of, of the Christian church. So kind of the end of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kind of the end there. And, and we, then we made the transition into the book of Acts. That's what we've been in. Um, it's loosely following along with what you might see if you tuned into NBC on Sunday nights, the AD miniseries that's been on. It's been, um, it's been a very interesting miniseries, a lot to think about. I, I've been pleased as a student of the Bible to see they've stuck pretty close to the script. Anytime that you have anybody that puts something in film that was in the Bible, they're going to take creative license and they're going to try and get it to how they think that it was and there's differences of opinions on different things, but at the end of the day, it's a great way to get us back into the Bible and saying, wow, Ananias and Sapphira, did that really happen that way? That seems kind of harsh. You know, there are some tough stories in the Bible. There are some really challenging, controversial things all through the Bible, and anything I think that gets us back looking at the Bible as our source for information can be a healthy thing if we let it be that. So this week, we're going to look at, a, at what happens in Acts chapter 5. Last week, if you were here with us last week, we, took, uh, we talked about when Peter and John were pulled in front of the council and were kind of given a stern talking to because they had the nerve to teach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a little bit of history has passed between last week's story and when we pick up with this week's story, and we find them in kind of the same place. They are once again being brought back in front of the council, and this time the action picks up a little bit. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Then we'll take you to a short clip from tonight's episode of AD on NBC that'll give you maybe a visual representation of how this might have gone down. And then we'll draw a few points out of it for, for us to apply to our lives this morning. Here's Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. And if you were with us last week, we actually studied that passage where they eventually let Peter and John go. They didn't incarcerate them beyond that offense, but they gave them strict orders. We'll let you go, but I never, ever, ever want you to teach in the name of Jesus Christ again. And basically, when Peter and John left, they didn't agree to those terms. They basically said, well... We can't help but tell everybody what we have seen and what we have heard. So it was kind of set up that there was going to be a run-in again. And here is that run-in. It says, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. Instead, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him. It's kind of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? I mean, these guys, without Facebook, without Twitter, without live streaming, without cable, with just a changed life and word of mouth and some courage from God and the power of the Holy Spirit, told an entire city in the matter of a few days and a few weeks about Jesus Christ. He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I can't do anything that amounts to anything for God. I don't have all the gifts. I don't have all the talents. I don't have all the abilities. You're a perfect candidate for God to use. The Bible is filled with stories of how God took broken, imperfect, unusual, struggling people. It's not my notes. I feel I need to say this for somebody this morning. You sit here every week, and every time you hear this, you think, I will never amount to anything for God. I I can't speak. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I'm just a normal, average, ordinary person with all my issues. I want to tell you something. You're the perfect person. God loves to use people like that because people who think they have it all together never give God the credit. They think it's all about them. People who think that they're just the best singer, the best speaker, the most intelligent, the most wealthy. We don't feel like we need God. We feel like we've got everything we got because of ourselves. We're self-starters. We made our own way. 
God loves to find broken, unusual people and use them for his glory because they become an arrow that points to Jesus. Look at the beginning of the Bible, man. Look at Moses. Moses had a learning disability. He had a stammering, stuttering problem. He was not eloquent of speech. God came to him and I said, I want you to go to the king and tell him to let these people go. And he said, I, I, I can't even put two sentences together. And God said, perfect. It's not about you. It's about what I can do in you if you'll let me. What about Abraham? Abraham had a problem telling the truth when it was going to get him in trouble, didn't he? He wasn't perfect. When he got in dicey situations, he told little white lies and sometimes just outright lies. And don't get on my theology of white lies. I don't believe in white lies, okay? I'm just, it's a terminology that we use. But he would tell the truth and he, or he, he would tell things that weren't true if it meant he could get himself out of trouble. But yet, didn't God use Abraham mightily? God was patient with Abraham and God discipled Abraham and God taught Abraham and God used him. He was an imperfect person. But God used him for his glory because he surrendered his will to him. Abraham, wasn't he the guy the Bible says? And Abraham went, not knowing where he was going. He just followed God, didn't have a roadmap or GPS, but just trusted God enough to lead him a step, a step, a step, and a day at a time. What about King David? God used King David mightily. He came from nothing. He came from sibling rivalry. He came from all kinds of issues. He wasn't even the first choice of his own dad to be meaningful for anything, but God exalted him. He used him as king. But David had a lust problem. David had a lying problem. David wasn't perfect, but yet God used him. What about Peter? Peter wasn't perfect. Peter was a big, strong, strapping man. He was a great fisherman, but he, he was the first one to volunteer for stuff. He was the last man standing. But man, Peter had a habit of speaking without thinking, didn't he? My fa- I've told you before, my favorite verse in the Gospel of Luke, Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says this, and Peter, not knowing what to say, said... <laughs> I am that guy. Some of you are wise enough when you don't know what to say, you don't. Me, on the other hand, when I don't know what to say, I stand up and talk to you for 45 minutes, and then you say, no, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, I knew it, I knew it. But yet, God used Peter mightily for his glory because God loves to take people who are broken, people who are maybe defective in some ways, and I would hit all of those categories. You see, those things aren't intimidating to God. He's not looking for your abilities. He's looking for your availability. If you are willing to live for him and not for you, he can do anything. He can change history through your life. He loves to use people who are simply broken and recognize that they are. I don't know how I got off on that trail, but maybe somebody needed to hear that today. You don't feel like you amount to much. You look at the mirror and you decide on God's behalf he can't use you. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke that lie over your life today. If you want him to use you and you will follow him, then friend, buckle up your seatbelt. He will use you. He will use you. He'll use you to do mighty things. So here's what it says. Peter and the apostles reply this, verse 29, getting back on the script. He says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Wow, could we talk about that a while this morning? He says, if I have to make a choice, if the choices are, we'll use a phrase, mutually exclusive, if I must choose between obeying you 
and listening to my governmental civil authority, we're going to obey God. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him, pretty bold statement, (laughs) accusing the council of murder by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. Do you see what they do here? In the face of the people who are trying to sentence them to death, they turn around and preach the gospel to try to save them. I could learn a lot from their response to hatred. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. Now, this is a tiny snippet of a little bit larger story. So I'm going to invite you to draw your attention to the screen. We're going to roll a clip that's from tonight's miniseries, and then I'll come back and give you three, three points from it to apply it, and then we're going to pray together. Our nation is poisoned. Turn away from hate. Turn away from violence. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen. Open your hearts. Hear our message of hope and love for all people. Come. Jesus is the good shepherd. People would not act this way if they knew the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming to Jerusalem. He is the resurrection and the life. I suppose it's thankless to ask, but I'd very much like to know how you escaped yourself. Then I can only assume that you have some experience of lockpicking, a skill which most reasonable people would associate with criminality. Very well. You are accused of continuing to teach the name of a false prophet. You defy the temple and conspire to lead the lost souls of this city astray. What have you to say to this? Answer me! Out of respect for the learned elders of the Sanhedrin, we will not seek to defend our beliefs. We only know them to be true. There can be no defense or clarification or mitigation of the truth. It simply is. And what is the truth? That God raised Jesus from the dead to sit at his right hand as prince and savior. And it was his spirit that freed us from your chains. You are aware that saying such things condemns you as false prophets according to the law. There is only one outcome. You are to be put to death by stones. For so many lives to be clipped. Rabbi Gamaliel, do you find fault in our application of the law? No, 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 probably not. But as president of the Sanhedrin, I'm obligated to poke a finger into matters that pique my interest. Of course, but what more is there to say? They've been found guilty. Yes, 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 yes. it's all very upsetting. But I wonder, do you not recall the enthusiasms of your own youth? 
and being carried away by them? Your wisdom is highly valued and recognized by all, but... But I should sit down now, should I? No, no, I cannot. My conscience pricks at me for us both. Let these men alone. They are not dangerous. If what they claim is false, then nothing will come of it. And in time, they will simply fade away. But if it is true and you destroy them, you will find yourselves in opposition to God. Having considered the wisdom of Gamaliel, it is agreed that the sentence shall be commuted. But you're to be taken to a public place and flogged so that everyone may know your guilt. obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country the fruit of your womb will be cursed the crops of your land the calves of your herds the lambs of your flocks you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out the Lord will send on you curses and rebuke everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin. It's it's difficult to really read through the first through the end of the gospels, the brutality of what early Christians faced. Not only for their faith, but so that you and I could sit where we sit this morning in a relatively nice facility and open the Bible and study together because they carried the message. Jesus trusted the truth of the message of who he was to these men. And you see the transformation in such a, really only a period of several weeks, a couple months, between when they were running and hiding to the point where they heroically faced danger and persecution for the cause of Christ. Something transformed in their hearts and their lives that transformed this, this band of men from who they were before Christ died on the cross to who they were at the point that we see in, in, in the book of Acts. There's a lot going on in this story politically that we could talk about this morning. There's a lot going in this story spiritually that we could talk about this morning. We could probably come back to this passage multiple times in the next few years and take from it. What I want to talk to you about this few moments this morning is how to have heroic courage. How 
do we have heroic courage? What is it? Where does it come from? How do I get it? Because what I see in this story, I see men who had absolute courage, unwavering courage, type of courage that I don't have any idea to gauge whether I have the same thing or not, because to this point in my life, I have not put in, been put in any situation similar to what the early church faced. So I don't know, in a sense, whether I have that or not. But I hope, if I do my job correctly this morning, I hope that you and I can come to a place where we say, you and I need heroic courage just to make the simple decisions we need to make every single day of our lives. So let's look at this story. The big idea today is this. The big idea in the book of Acts shows us very clearly that the earliest Christians faced opposition, they faced persecution, suffering, and death. But they faced it with heroic courage. Each of us at various times needs the same kind of courage to push forward in spite of our fears. Let me give that to you one more time. You can follow right along with your notes. The big idea is that the earliest Christians faced opposition, they faced persecution, they faced suffering, and they faced death with heroic courage. Each of us at various times needs the same kind of courage to push forward in spite of our fears. A lot of times you and I read these stories and we're inspired by them, we're moved by them. If we're honest, we're made a little bit uncomfortable by them. But we have a hard time putting ourselves into the place of the apostles because maybe for some of us, and, and for there, I, I have no doubt in my mind that there are some in this room who have faced similar types of threats and persecution for your faith. There are others of us who haven't. And so it's difficult for us to kind of read ourselves into the story because we immediately disqualify ourselves because saying, you know, I've never been arrested for preaching in public. I've never been flogged. I've never gone through those things. So why would I even need that type of courage? I don't face those types of things. Let's dig a little bit deeper this morning. What is, what's courage? What's courage? I mean, we could Google it. You can go on an app of your phone and find out. I want to re- reread to you one of those verses. I want you to hear what courage sounds like. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now you have to understand, as you saw from the video, this probably helps you. Do you understand who he was saying this to and in what conditions he was saying this under? He was essentially standing before the legal ruling system of the day the people who had the power to kill them and they wanted to and he looked into the eyes of the people and he could see and hear and smell his own death in front of him he looks into the eyes of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and he says to them we are not going to back down to you And then he insults them in a way by saying, we will obey God rather than you. Now you understand the Sanhedrin thought they were acting on God's behalf. They thought they were God to them. And so when Peter says, we're going to obey God, not you, what he's also saying, you are disobeying God. So he is essentially defending himself 
and vilifying them while they are defending themselves, thinking they're doing in the name of Jesus and vilifying the disciples. I would suggest to you, friends, that's courage. When you can look at the one who has power to kill you and you essentially dare them to pull the trigger, that's courage. That's courage. Let me define it for you. Let me give this to you in your notes. Here's a definition of courage. Heroic courage means remaining principled in the face of danger and opposition. Courage isn't just about bravery. It's about saying when I'm in danger, when I face opposition, I don't back down. I stick to the principle. I stick to the principle. Now, the word hero is troublesome in our our culture. We use that word too loosely. We misapply it. We've labeled all kinds of people and all kinds of scenarios. We've labeled them as heroes. There's a difference between being a star and being a hero. You see, stars are surrounded by crowds. They've got a million likes on Facebook. They've got a thousand and they've got a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. They've got entourages. Stars are surrounded by crowds. Heroes, they pretty much walk alone. Stars, when they have a big decision that they need to make, they consult their inner circle. They think very carefully. They look at their PR team. They think very carefully and cautiously about what they should do about themselves and their brand. Heroes, they stick to their principles. Heroes don't care about the likes, the followers, the retweets. Heroes make decisions not based on the crowd, but based on their principles. We misapply and we use too casually the term of hero. And I don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning, but I want to suggest to you The church has a problem with labeling people as heroes because of what they, because of who they are, not of what they stand for. We're very quick to find the Christian athletes, the Christian movie stars, the people who make a confession of faith or come out somewhere and say, "I'm a Christian." The Christian reality TV stars, and we, the church, start rallying around the people. And we lift them up and we hold them out in the face of the unbelieving world and say, we root for them and we cheer for them. And no person can stand the type of scrutiny that we elevate these people into. What we don't do is find the principle about these people's lives and hold that principle up. And say, we celebrate this and we hold this up. I think we need to be very careful as a church Because Tim Tebow or Willie Robinson or Phil Robinson or any of these other people that we hold up culturally cannot stand the type of scrutiny that you and I are trying to put them in. Because when you do that, you've elevated someone to a place that only Jesus should be be, and only Jesus can stand that type of scrutiny. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me pointing to Tim Tebow, even though my eagles have signed him now and I'm stuck with this whole situation now. Um, This is not an indictment of Tim Tebow. There are principles in his life 
that we can hold up and that we can honor and that we can embody. We need to be careful about pushing people in the place that principles need to be. And no one needs to take the shine that Jesus is. I invite you to hold him up. I invite you to, to learn more about Jesus. There are people in this room, you know more facts about your favorite hero than you do about Jesus Christ. You know their quotes, you know their songs, you know their comings and goings, and you know nothing about Jesus. He is the one that we should be holding up. It's all about who Jesus Christ is. He's the only one who has stood the test of time of being able to be put on the platform that we would put him on and no one has been able to knock him off it. That's what these men did. In the time of courage, Peter and John didn't use this to take a principled stand and make this all about them. Peter and John didn't stand and say, we have been arrested unfairly and unjustly. We're going to go in sight of this. They pointed an arrow to Jesus Christ. And they bore their stripes. And they took their lickings. But they didn't do it for themselves. They didn't do it to be famous. They didn't do it to be stars. They didn't do it so that they could become saints and people could write books after them and people could characterize them in movies. They did it because their Lord and Savior bled and died for them and they were convinced that the hope for the world was in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why they did what they did. And that's a principle I can celebrate. And that's a principle I can hold up. And that's something that when I see it in another human being, yes, I can celebrate that. Not the person. Tim Tebow has not called me and asked me to, to, to talk him up to everybody. And in fact, some of these guys are a little bit uncomfortable with the way people talk about them. They don't want them, their name to be the top story. They want Jesus Christ to be elevated. So let's work alongside them and elevate the principles and be careful about elevating people over principles. Heroic courage is being able to remain principled even in spite of danger and opposition. Being a hero is not something you have to do. It's something you choose to do. Most of us would hear this and say, you know what? When it comes to being a hero, having this kind of courage that they have in the story, I'm never going to be put in a situation like that. Some people will have heroism required of them and some people won't. Most people, most of us, here's the truth. Most of us need this kind of courage just to simply live our lives. You know why? Because maybe you don't have the courage to tell somebody the truth. Because it could be dangerous for you. It could mean you're going to run into some opposition. And there's somebody you have a relationship with. Somebody maybe you're related to, you work with, you know you care about. Someone who would have a conversation with you if you'd have it with them. And you lack the heroic courage to remain principled in spite of danger and opposition. Maybe there's a conversation you need to have with a child or maybe you need to have with a parent to tell them the truth, to speak correction, to speak love, to speak healing and restoration. But you lack the courage to do it because you're more concerned about how it could affect you than the principle. The truth of the matter is this. You and I desperately need the heroic courage that these men had through relationship with Jesus Christ just to live the simple lives that you and I live every single day. Do you have the courage to be a friend, a spouse, a neighbor? If so, don't worry about facing death. Let's start here. 
What if you don't... What, what if you don't have the character to rise to the occasion if the occasion calls for it? That's what courage is. It's what you and I need. I will tell you, I am passionately committed as your pastor to being a disciple of Jesus and to making disciples of Jesus. I did not realize when we crafted that statement on a piece of paper and, and now we're making that our Trinity life all across. I did not realize at the time it sounded really good and then you start walking in that direction for a while. I want to tell you, you want to make, you want to be a disciple, you better be courageous because you're going to have to look at some stuff in your own life you are scared to look at. And if you want to make disciples, if I just want to make disciples in my own home, there are conversations at time I need to have with my three-year-old that I'm afraid to have because it will not go well for me. If I can't have it with my own son, I'm going to be of no use to the kingdom of God. I need the type of courage that says I have to stand for the right principles. The problem is, oh boy, this isn't in our notes. I should have thought through this one. Um, even your principles, you need to be careful with those. Some of us are, are fine with, <laughs> we're fine with facing persecution for our principles, but your principles are wrong. Principle doesn't just mean something that fires you up. Principle means how does God feel about this? And how God feels about it becomes my adopted principle. So lest I get you all fired up to go face danger and opposition for your principle, make sure you are climbing out on a limb that the Bible tells you to get out on. Make sure you are choosing a hill to die on that Jesus himself died on. Because when you step up and step out for the right things, God always steps in and defends his word. But if you climb out on a tree limb yourself, on a soapbox you constructed of your own opinions and ideas, you are working for a world of hurt, and then we usually end up asking Jesus to bail us out of a mess he never led us into. So for the sake of your own sanity, and for the sake of your relationship with Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, before you get behind your keyboard and start spouting your principles to the world, slow your roll for a moment and ask, is my principle in alignment with my God and Savior? And then if it is, check your heart and make sure it comes out right, and then you stand. Please don't ever hear me say, and don't twist my words, I do not suggest moral neutrality. I do not say, hey, the church shouldn't judge anybody. The Bible says you and I should be able to work in conjunction with Jesus Christ to judge right from wrong. However, it also says you need to check your own eye first before you start pointing a finger in everybody else's. You want to go do surgery on my eye, get the two by four out of your first before you go with tweezers after mine. If we're going to be part of the solution and the hope for Baltimore, judgment starts in our heart. What things have been squeezed out of you over the past few days that you need to repent for? If we want God to act justly, then start with me. Are you brave enough to pray that? I want God to act justly. We've got a young man who died and his family needs answers. He needs justice. No problem with that. Not at all. But if the people who are going to make those decisions are going to act justly, and if we as a community are going to figure how we move forward from this, and if we ever come to a place of, of peace and reconciliation, any kind of understanding, we don't start by throwing words and throwing rocks and getting angry with each other. We start by saying, God, clean up my own heart, because if I'm honest, I'm part of the city, and there's some garbage in my own heart that needs to be cleaned out first. Then we, the church, can see clearly to act and to say and to do and to be all that we need to act and say and do and be on Jesus' behalf, but not before. Has to start there. Has to start there.
Question number two. Where does courage come from? Here's what the apostle said. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. I don't have a lot of time to to expand this very much other than to tell you this, I, I, I needed to get a little help in understanding those two words, prince and savior. And actually, I was really pleased. They used it in that video clip when, when, when Peter was making his defense. He, he, he quotes this verse. That word, that word prince, is, the word savior is the word soter, which you know, forms the word soteriology, which in, our, you know, in theolo- theological circles is the study of salvation. That word prince is a Greek word that's only used four times in the whole Bible. And it's interpreted a couple of different ways. It's actually, it's actually the Greek word archegos, which actually literally means arch ego, which actually in the Hellenistic culture was their word for hero. He's saying, then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand. You could loosely translate it as hero and savior. Essentially what Peter is saying is that heroic courage comes from our hero. And here's the deal. Jesus is both like and unlike Modern superheroes. Biggest difference about him is most of our modern, all of our modern superheroes, they are fictitious characters. They're not real, man. I thought I saw Batman one time. It was just my neighbor who got tangled up in a bed sheet and was running down the street. It was not actually Batman. (laughs) Superheroes are fictitious. Jesus is very, very, very real. Superheroes are trying to defeat their enemies. Jesus died to save his enemies. Some of the superheroes actually died. Jesus defeated death. Superheroes are generally just normal, average people who, I guess, in some cases got bit by a spider and got superpowers, whatever. They were normal, average people in many ways who were given power. Jesus doesn't need superpowers. He has them all already. The difference about Jesus and superheroes is Jesus laid his powers down. Where does courage come from? Heroic courage comes from a willingness to give up power and glory to preserve somebody else. That's where courage comes from. Courage courage comes from a willingness to give up something, to give up some of your power, to give up some of your glory, to give up some of your status, to give up some of your safety. Not so that you can be called a hero, but so that you can preserve somebody else. You know why the apostles were able to have courage in this setting? They looked at the example of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid his power down to preserve you and to preserve me. And the last question is this. How do I get courage? How do I get courage? I hear courage in this story at the very end of this interaction between the Sanhedrin and the apostles. I hear courage when they're told to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And here's what they say in verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. You see, there's basically two ways you can get courage. I'll give them both to you quickly. One way is called denial. The other way is called hope. There's two ways you can find courage. You can find bravery when you need it. When you're faced with danger, when you're faced with opposition, you can go in one of two paths. It's a little deep psychologically, but I'll make it very shallow because that's where I live. Some of you live in the deep areas and you think very, very deeply. I'm just much, I'm much simpler. I think up here. 
Here's what denial means. I've done this before with some success. Denial, fi- denial simply means this. Um, finding courage through denial means convincing yourself that all the fearful possible outcomes in this situation won't happen. Go ahead, go ahead, Phil, climb up the top of the ladder. You're not going to fall, you're not going to fall, you're not going to fall. When your little kid gets nervous, going down the steps, don't worry, buddy, you're not going to fall, take your time, you're not going to fall, you're not going to fall. What I'm trying to get him to do is, in his imagination, eliminate all possible negative possibilities to give him the courage to take the next step. You convince yourself it's not going to happen, and you push on. Have you done this? You've looked at a situation as dangerous and what you said, I'm going to block out all of the non-desirable outcomes and pretend like they don't exist and I'm going to muster my energy and I'm going to push forward and I'm going to get there. Here's the problem with that. Sometimes you fall. Sometimes... Those things happen. What you're doing is trying to, you're actually trying to convince yourself to a degree to be delusional. That's why you don't hear me from this pulpit saying nothing can stop you. Because sometimes things stop you. The original title for this message was you can't stop the unstoppable. And I started reading through it. I was like, that's not even theologically accurate. I've been stopped before. I've fallen off the ladder. Sometimes those things I'm telling myself will never happen, happen. And then where are you? So you can go about it this way. If you need courage in your life, you can convince yourself, I'm going to have this conversation today and it's going to go great. And my kid's not going to get upset. My coworker's going to receive it. We're going to hug. We're going to sing Kumbaya. We're going to go have a coffee. Everything's going to be great. We're just going to be buddies forever. Maybe not. Trust me, as a pastor, I used to try and do that. I've got this uncomfortable conversation I have to have with a person, and I'm going to think this through in my mind. I'm going to stay up all night and worry about it, and it's going to go great. And I'm just in the name of Jesus. I'm just going to claim it's going to be wonderful, and you get in with your good plan, and someone decides that they don't want it to go wonderful. And then where are you? Maybe there's a better way. Here's another way you can get courage. You can get courage through something called hope. Finding courage through hope means looking at the bravery of someone who is being brave for you, and then you will become brave. How in the world did the apostles find hope? They looked at the example of someone who had been brave for them. And then they were brave. They looked at the example. They quoted the example. They focused their attention. You could not waver them from the topic of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. When Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, I have been there. I have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have video. One of these Sundays I will show you. Moved my life. It's only... There were only 12 trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've had to remove one uh, because of construction. The 11 trees that were originally in the Garden of Gethsemane are still there today. It's a powerful place. When you read the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you hear a delusional man? Do you hear a man who says, you know what, give me the cup, I'll take it. Everything's going to be great. I'm just going to block out all negative possibilities. Give me the cup. That's not what you hear. You hear Jesus saying, If it's possible, take the cup from me. You hear a man who was fighting against fear. You hear a man who needed to muster up some courage. But he didn't find it by being delusional. 
I believe in that moment, something happened in his own heart, and he started looking at something that made him brave. And I have to believe is looking at you and looking at me and saying, I'm going to lay my glory down. This is not going to be fun. This is not going to be pleasant. But I'm going to lay my power and my glory down, and I'm going to go to the cross, not because I want to or I'm excited about it. I'm going to go, and I'm going to die because I need to save Brian. I need to save Phil. I need to save Stuart. I need to save Alan and Debbie. He became brave, not by being delusional, but by looking at something he could be brave for. And the apostles, when they're standing in front of the council, if they just looked in the eyes of the people who wanted to cure them, they would have cowered away in fear. But they looked in the eyes of the people who wanted to kill them, and they started focusing on Jesus Christ, the one who had been brave for them. And all of a sudden, they were brave. Friend, when you need courage, focus your attention on Jesus Christ who was brave for you. And all of a sudden, you will find yourself brave. How did the church survive this kind of persecution? They focused on the one who was brave for them, and they became brave. I learned this. I learned this firsthand as our worship team comes. We're going to close our service right here. I learned this firsthand as an example of my own life last Friday. And I didn't share this. I didn't share this publicly, my son had major surgery last Friday. And um, he had full reconstructive surgery on his mouth. And um, I'm just careful about the things that I say about my son publicly when it comes to medical things because I just don't need, not everybody's mature enough to hear all that and I don't need to put him through all that. But the reality was, if you've ever put a child through surgery, you put him under general anesthesia for a couple hours, it's scary as a parent. It's scary. And your mind starts playing all kinds of games with you. And I intentionally at home was not talking. Kendra and I weren't talking a whole lot about this back and forth. We weren't going back and forth about a whole lot of this information. We weren't, ex- we weren't exchanging it. We weren't exchanging the information. And um, about a week before we started talking to my son about it, trying to get him psyched up and prepared for all this. And at first, I do not want to go to the hospital. I do not want to have them work on my teeth. I do not want new teeth. I do not want new gums. I do not. Oh, great. This is just going to be spectacular. And I'm imagining in my mind, like having to hold him down against the will and they're giving him the medicine to make him go. All these scenarios playing out in my mind. But I kept those things very, very, very internal. I did not feel so courageous. I started going down the track of being delusional. Nothing bad will happen. Nothing can ever happen. It won't. It, and that's one approach. But then from somewhere inside my heart, I felt a sense of I need to be courageous for my son and I need to be courageous for my wife. And I felt a sense of peace and courage start to rise up inside of me. And when we went to the hospital that Friday, my son got up at 4.30 in the morning in the most delightful mood. He was so ready and excited to go to the hospital, put on his special hospital clothes, go ride on the cart. The nurses and the doctors that were tending to my son were using words like he was delightful and funny and entertaining us with his stories. When we got there, I recognized my wife was real quiet. I've not spent a day of my life as the mother of my child. And so I recognize I have no holding place in my mind for how she feels watching her son go under anesthesia have his eyes roll back. and It just. But you know, I recognized in that moment, somebody among the three of us needed to be brave so that the other two could look at them and find the courage that they needed 
to be able to deal. And I thought, I'm not going to do my son any good if I'm sitting there crying and in big, bawling, heaving mass on the ground, worrying about everything. My son and I were joking around and carrying on and telling stories and telling jokes. We had a wonderful time together. And yes, inside there was still some fear, but I'm trying to be strong in that moment so that I can put my wife at ease and my son at ease. And the good news is everything went beautifully. Everything went smoothly. By 1030, we were riding riding home and pumping him full of ice cream. It was fantastic. But I'm going to tell you this, there is something powerful in moments where you need courage of being able to find somebody or something who is already being brave and who has courage and you can draw from them. And the person you can always count on is the bravery and the courage of Jesus Christ, who is willing to face his own murder, his own torture, his own death, not for himself, but for you and for me. And when you get in a situation where you've got to face a tough, difficult conversation, you've got to make a decision that's on a biblical principle. You look at Jesus Christ. You look at the example of who he was. And if you don't know, then for the love of everything sacred, open up your Bible and read. If you don't have a Bible, stop by Guest Central. We will give you one. I want you to understand the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the hero of all heroes. He's the one who provides the example that you and I follow. He's the one that we can look to for courage in our time of need. Let's pray together this morning. Our worship team in a moment is going to close us out with a song. Five minutes from now, the service will be dismissed. And if you have children, you can go pick them up and you can go about the rest of your afternoon and start your work week. But before we go, let's pause and just reflect on maybe what God might be saying to you and to me this morning. What things need to change? What things need to be different? What's the next step in what you heard today? What's that one sentence or that one moment this morning that you felt like that was for me? I want you to go back to that moment. I want you to ask God, God, what do I need to do with what I just heard. And as you're pondering that for a moment, I want to invite our pastors and our prayer team to come. They're going to stand on either side of the the platform. If you're new to us, this is something we do almost every week at the end of our service. We close by singing a song of worship together, by thinking about what we just heard and maybe what God might want to do different. Some of us make decisions in these moments about things that need to change. And then as we sing at the end, we just have some men and women who love Jesus with all their hearts and who are very trustworthy people who make themselves available for anybody at all in our church to come down and just talk to them individually and just ask them to pray with them about stuff. We pray about if it's important to you, it matters to God. And they're here. The Bible tells us very clearly in the book of James, if you need prayer, call for your church leaders and they'll pray with you. So our church leaders are here. You don't have to track them down during the week. They're here right now. They're available to you. They're not going to repeat anything that you, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to go home and type everything out that you said on Facebook and say, can you believe what I heard? You can trust them. They're just here to listen to you, to encourage you, and to pray with you. So this morning, I just want to give opportunity. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to him, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never decided to follow him, here is your moment. If you are here this morning and you are ready to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, to surrender your life to him, to invite him to be the very center of your life and to follow in his ways and to become his disciple, it begins with a simple prayer of confession and repentance. It sounds like this. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are the son of God who lived a sinless life and died for my sins and defeated death. You paid the penalty for all of my sins forever. And today... I confess to you my need of you. I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I've fallen short of your standard and I invite you into the center of my life. Please forgive me. Please transform me and please change me. In your mighty name I pray, amen.